You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D, the podcast that explores the power of inclusion and why disability is an important part of the workplace diversity and inclusion conversation. Produced by the Ontario Disability Employment Network, with your hosts, Jeanette Campbell and Dean Askin. Hello there. Got a question for you. When you hear the words disability inclusion, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? There's a lot being written these days about accessibility and disability inclusion in business and employment. But what about something like disability inclusion and accessibility in research? I'll wager that's not something many of us have thought about. I know I haven't. Hello and welcome to this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. I'm Dean Askin. And I'm Jeanette Campbell. And Dean, I have to say, disability inclusion and accessibility in research isn't the first thing that comes to mind for me either. But I think we'll all be thinking more about it by the end of this show. This is the second part in our two-part series on new disability research initiatives happening in Canada. And this episode is going to rouse all your senses. That's because our guest is doing something innovative out of the University of Calgary multi-sensory storytelling research, research that's accessible and inclusive of people who have a disability. Now, if that sounds innovative, so to speak, well, it is. It's a Canadian first. In fact, this is the first initiative of its kind in the world. And this is literally adding a whole new dimension to how social research is done. So much so, the project received over 400,000 in federal funding from the Canada Foundation for Innovation. Now, I'm going to borrow a famous character's line here, and I'm going to say that my senses are tingling about this conversation we're about to have. I know who you're talking about, Jeanette. Seen the movies and used to watch them every Saturday morning, and my senses are tingling too. So I'll get right to it and start tackling this tingling by telling you and our listeners a bit about our guest, Dr. Kathleen Sitter. Kathleen runs the multisensory studio at the University of Calgary. She's also associate professor in the Faculty of Social Work. As well, she's the Canada Research Chair in Multisensory Storytelling in Research and Knowledge Translation. And here she is, joining us from Calgary, to put things in perspective and help us make sense of accessibility and inclusion in research. So Kathleen, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me here today. Well, thank you for making time and joining us. So we're going to jump right into this conversation. And I'm going to say that I guess when most people think of research, they think of surveys or clinical studies or sitting down with someone and asking them questions, sort of like what we're doing right now. But can you tell us about the multi-sensory studio and this kind of research approach? And maybe can you give me an example of how this gets applied practically? Sure. That's a great question. Um, So at the multi-sensory studio, we're guided by three um, main areas. One, we want to make research accessible. We want to create stories through our senses, and we want to celebrate difference. And the way we think about it is that a lot of times, just like you said, Jeanette, research is often, when we think about research, We often think about methods like surveys or interviews, and that relies a lot on the written word and also on um, the spoken word, too. And many of us uh, don't communicate that way. And so when we think about um, disabled folks and the way in which we, the way in which to try and understand people's experiences, oftentimes first person accounts may not be included people might ask caregivers or they might ask other family members, but we know that everybody has stories to tell. So when we think about research and how we wanna try and make it accessible, how we approach it is we think, okay, maybe it's not about trying to fit a certain way of doing things, but actually change the way we do things so that we can communicate in new ways, we can understand things in new ways and access new understandings of people's experiences. And that's where our senses come in. So if you can imagine telling a story, but without using words, or if you can share your experience, but without relying on having to fill out a survey, what would be the things that would open up to that? Um, When at the multi-sensory studio, the other piece that we're looking at is 
um, the way in which senses can really guide the way that we learn things. So I'll give you some examples maybe to help understand uh, what we're talking about here. That would be great. <laughs> so right now we're doing something with um, what we call acoustic storytelling. We're looking at stories around life stage transitions. So what it's like when we make a big move or if we start school or if we're looking at um, employment or anything that might be considered a big life stage transition. So instead of just talking about it or asking people questions, we are working with folks on understanding people's experiences, but through sounds. So what is the sound of that environment or what do you think about when you're experiencing those things? So um, one project we have going on right now, we work with people, we explore a topic. So let's say moving, what that's like. We all, I don't know if any of you have moved before, but it can be a super stressful experience. It's considered um, one of those big, big things that many of us don't really look forward to. I used to be a serial mover. So yes, <laughs> yes, I moved a lot. You're right. It's a very stressful situation. So this is an, an, an example I think a lot of people can relate to. So this is great. Yeah. So what we would do is we would explore the topic a little bit more and then think about what are the sounds that you often hear about when you're, or you think about when you're moving. So you might think about, I don't know, like a moving truck or uh, actually moving furniture, like those little pieces or the uh, process of it. Like a tape gun. Yeah, like a tape gun. Great. Um, for other folks, let's say you're moving into a, a care facility. Things that might be really important or an imagined future might be accessing a place where you can make friendships or what the dining room is like when you're eating or um actually being able to wheel down a hallway and listening to that as well to understand that experience. So we explore the idea of story in a way that can capture different ways in which we can understand that experience that doesn't rely on the spoken word or the written word. So we work with people with complex communication needs um, or complex communication considerations, um, mobility considerations, other parts that um, often we can be disabled by the environment with. And instead of exploring it in a neurotypical kind of way, we try and open it up a bit. And when we think about the studio, that means that for the researcher, we have to think about things differently. We have to think about um, information in a way that is broader, in my opinion. So when we're doing research, we're capturing all of our senses all the time, but we may not be paying attention to it, right? We might not be attuned to it. And what we're trying to do is actually paying attention to uh, different parts of stories and amplifying that in different spaces. I can share a different example too that might be a little bit more, um, uh, yeah, I can share another example too, or I can just keep going. Well, you know what, actually, I, I have a feeling we're going to ask you for other examples later on in this conversation. So you've, you know, what you're talking about is, is so different that like the information that I'm processing right now audibly um, is is very different from information that I've heard before and this is this is brand new and you talked about life stage transitions and things like that thinking about what what you've just talked about with the multi-sensory studio this is a really really different approach to to research and I'm wondering when you were putting this together and putting this uh, in as a project for funding so you could start doing this work. You know, did you think that you were actually going to get it? And what do you remember about, what, what were you thinking about when you found out that you were one of the, one of the projects at University of Calgary that was getting this research grant? Well, when we were putting it together, because it always takes a village to put these things together, and I'm really fortunate to work with two amazing um scholars, uh, David Nicholas and Adam Patrick Bell. Uh, we were, we wanted to put something that would um, really speak to our values and our, and how we like to do work, but also how we think about the way in which research should be done. And when we, yeah, when we put it together, we thought, okay, so how do we actually, it's not just about put, uh, putting together this grant that would create this really amazing space, 
but how do we do it all the way through? So before we even started, we put together a group and um, it was facilitated by two architects and uh, the group involved people with lived experience and expertise in the field. And we kind of had this really cool meeting where it was like blue sky. What could this possibly look like? So then we had this amazing wish list. And then uh, from there as a group, that was critical because it laid the foundation of what was really needed. Um, and then from there, we had to kind of, we had our dreams and then we had our reality and what we had to put together. Um, from that too, even the way in which we thought about the multi-sensory studio. So to give a bit of background, we're looking at all these different suites. So we have like a smell suite, how you tell stories through smells. We have an accessible sound studio. So making music in real time, that's accessible. We have a visual component. So creating digital stories and cell films. And then we have a kitchen and accessible kitchens because we know that taste is a big piece. And we have this touch wall where we can um, tell stories through what it feels like, like the haptic piece. Um, so when we were thinking of all this, we also thought about, well, how do we want to, how do we want this to live in the world that really speaks to, as you were saying, inclusion and access. So that means that we are planning on most of our folks that work with us um, are neurodivergent and in the disability community. We're looking at higher hiring and training what we call, um, I forget the acronym, I think it's high quality personnel, but folks from our community um, with lived experience. So we also have an advisory board that includes key organizations and decision makers, and that includes advocates, allies, um, disabled community members um, with lived experience. So when we think about it, it's not only the building per se or the space, which is critical, but it's also everything leading up to that. When we thought about the space as well, we wanted to make sure that it was accessible. And that's not only when we think about, um, you know, like ensuring that there's braille and um, and all gendered bathrooms and whatnot, but also is it near a subway line? What is the platform getting into it? Like all these pieces we had to consider. And we did that, I would say, in a way that involved community from the very beginning. So when we um, think about the time and the energy and all the people involved in this, we um, were pretty hopeful, but um, I don't know the term here, but maybe it was like cautious on <laughs> thinking whether or not it would go through. We knew it was a big ask. Yeah. And, um, and this has been in the works for a couple of years. So it wasn't something that just kind of got thrown together. Uh, and we were all, we were so excited and so happy and just celebrating the fact that um, it was also written in a way that people got what we were trying to do. And um, the feedback that we got from the reviewers as well, because they share that was really uh, positive and exciting. And we felt like, yeah, this is, it really was validating that this is an important piece in research and, um, and making sure that this comes to life. Wow. And, you know, it's really different. And, you know, it's got me thinking, you know, when you were talking about moving, you know, my daughter just moved to New Brunswick. And I was thinking, you know, do the sounds of like whining and crying cats fit, <laughs> fit, fit, fit in there as well. And, you know, it just sounds so innovative and it's being called innovative. But deep down, do you think of it as innovative or are you just kind of doing what you do out there? Well, I think that, I mean, it's a yeah, it's a big question um, and a great one too, because is it innovative? I think sadly it is um, in the fact that when we think about ableism and the way in which a lot of our systems are really built for a certain type of body, a certain type of person, the way we move in the world, um, that is typical of our experiences here in Canada. And I think that what this does is it not only calls that out, but says, no, we, we actually need to create something that is accessible for everybody. And to do that, that costs a lot more money, which um, is the reality of it, because when we think about the built environment and also the time, like, I, I don't know if you've, you hear terms like crypt time and crypt theory and all these um, pieces in our world, but the way that the pace of things that are moving, um, how we actually engage with people, what that looks like. So while I gave the example of a really, I think a really innovative method per se, um, time that goes into that is a big consideration. 
and um, all those other parts that um, that need to be thought through when we're doing the work. So I think that um, a lot of people are doing the work. I don't think um, I don't think that in and itself is new, but for it to become mainstream per se, I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. What are some of the areas of, of research that all of this can be applied to? You know, I'm thinking, you know, like, is it just social research in general or there's, you know, health research or, you know, randomized clinical trials that you read about, you know, in the food industry? I mean, how broadly can it be applied? Food does some amazing things in this space <laughs> with that. Uh, when you think of smells and grocery stores and all those pieces are probably leading it in some ways too. Um, I think that there's, I think it, if we think about accessibility, it needs to be applied everywhere. So one part that we're playing with, and we try and hold, um, when I say, you know, we, um, me, but also the people that I work alongside, hold a place of humility because we make a boatload of mistakes through this process, right? Because um, it's not only just taking this, so in research, like credibility on the street is writing papers and, and presentations, which we still have to do. Um, but it's not just taking this, let's say, information or data and then transposing it into a way that's written. But how do we actually hold on to that in a space that is maintained as accessible? And that we're still working through. So, for instance, we did, um, we just finished doing what's called a four dimensional installation, or it's called Fractured Time. And it was with uh, three neurodivergent scholars and artists around their experiences during COVID. So, they filmed a bit of a, um, a space in their home. And then we layered that with the sounds of their home. And then we had these boxes where people could go through and touch the different parts of what it meant. Like one person really thought about old books. And so you'd be able to touch the books, but you couldn't see it, right? Like it was just covered with your hand, like your hands you'd put in these boxes. And then, then there were these jars that were full of smells. So one individual, they, um, the coffee in the morning or the feeding the dogs and so you would just be smelling these things with regards to the certain context of the story so that was that's an example which um speaks a little bit about how do we understand people's experiences but in a way that maintains that sensory engagement from the beginning and then throughout and also with the audience that where if we're going to break the ivory towers in a certain way, that means making sure that that process is accessible as well. And we use the term a lot, knowledge translation, and we play in that space too. So how do we share this information that um, everyone can access? Now, how people understand it and whatnot, that's... Um, That'll always be, I think, a work in progress too. Yeah, you're, you recognize that there's there there's an issue there, and you're being proactive in, you know, finding a new way to, to do things. And uh, you know, I was sort of I was reading an op-ed column uh, when I was doing some research for this show. I was reading a column in the International Journal of Market Research by one researcher, and she was saying, you know, she was making the point that you know if researchers don't see the problem, we can be part of the problem in accessibility i mean what do you think about that is you know is accessibility sometimes an afterthought in research circles just like it is in a lot of other circles well i think that it's a fair point that that person makes um and i could share an example <laughs> like when i mentioned around holding a place of humility we just finished doing this really i think it's i think it was really cool but we wanted to understand youth's experience around transitions whether they're starting school or finishing school, um, employment, moving, those kinds of pieces. Um, and we did it through a format called digital storytelling. And those are typically two to five minute videos that are short. And um, they talk about a personal experience. So we did this process where we did train the trainers. So we wanted to train neurodivergent youth who were in post-secondary, they became facilitators, and then they would actually work with community members across Canada. We did it all online to support people telling or creating these digital stories. What we learned through that was we had initial model that I've been doing that kind of work for about 15 years. And we used that at the beginning and it was clear that it wouldn't work because people were giving us feedback saying, um, this isn't working. This isn't working. You're jamming too much in. We really have to focus, let's say on connection. We have to spend more time just talking and getting to know one another because these were too weak workshops 
that we were doing. And so even the way that we were delivering it was a problem at the beginning. And we weren't aware of that. Um, so it caught, we had to work it, rework it, rework it, rework it. And I guess to an extent, it has to be really like, you have to be flexible and you have to be, um, in order to meet people where they're at, because that was a big part, which we wanted to do. Um, we had to be able to be flexible and that requires a lot of resources. So when I think about not like this comment that you made around, if you don't see the problem, we can be part of the problem. If we looked at it and said, no, this isn't working because of X, Y, and Z, like putting it back on the participants versus saying, hang on, something's going on with how we're delivering this. We need to change it. So how did we change it? We ended up adding more workshop time. We made sure that we had, we were nimble behind the scenes. We had to meet a lot more so we could meet people where they were at. So if we're working with folks who didn't use words to communicate how we were going to explore the way that story is understood and not within a certain construct, if you will. So different ways we can tell a story, different ways we can show it, we can hear it. So if we didn't choose to flip around and move around and make it a different delivery format, we would be stuck and we would have a lot of, um, I don't know if we would have been able to actually reach those stories and those people who had stories to tell in a way that would work for them. So I think that, yeah, we can be part of the problem. And that's why when I say hold a place of humility, I don't, it's not just a comment. It's like, oof, you know, when you get called out on stuff all the time, you have to um, be okay with that. And then really listen to the people you're working alongside or else I think we're going to miss the boat. It's like, you think you're representing the, the community that you served. And despite your best efforts, you find out, you know, that you're not. And, and, but you, you know, making 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 proactive efforts to you know to change that and, you know the other point that the writer in this op-ed was making was that you know if research isn't accessible and representative of the community then that that kind of calls into question the validity of any you know of any of the findings that you come up with i mean what do you think about that yeah i think this is a sounds like a good op-ed piece to me <laughs> um uh the uh I think they're right. Like in, in research, we talk a lot about a validity or quality criteria. So how do you, how, how can you show that you're doing what you said you're going to do? And there's different ways that you benchmark that. Um, and so when we think about accessibility and, and uh, disability and, and uh, multi-sensory research, I think that those kind of benchmarks, if you will, have to be really thoughtful in how you work with people and the way in which you engage. So I would agree that, um, I think it comes back to an earlier comment I made where a lot of times when we think about some of the research that's being done out there, we often, um, because of the methods that are being used, we may reach out to a caregiver or we may reach out to a family member um, and we get their opinion and their opinion is important, but first person accounts, lived experiences, when we're looking at a particular topic are critical. And I think we have to really, as researchers say, okay, so how do we do that in a way that's authentic, that's accessible, that meets the needs of where people are at? And to do that, we have to really think in different ways. And I think sensory method methods and modalities open up a whole world for us to really explore story and lived experience um, and to use your, your word in an innovative way that um, can help make the world or society a lot more accessible for everybody, which I think is what, you know, quality of life, that, that should be kind of a key part, right? So, well, and Kathleen, you know, that really leads into sort of, for me, one of those ultimate questions around this. Um, and so I'll just I'll just put the question as straight as I can. If people who have a disability are excluded from research because of the barriers to to because of accessibility barriers, either access to opportunity, access to participation, or uh, an inclusion issue, or some of the things that you've talked about, you know, when you said, you know. When you, when you called out sort of the ableism that's embedded in in so many things that we do. So if people who have a disability 
are excluded from research because of accessibility barriers, what are the implications? Yeah, well, there's a lot of implications. Um, there's an important uh, slogan that's used in the disability uh, community called nothing about us without us. And um, when we think about understanding an issue or, or a topic that's directly impacted by people, it can have huge implications from how it's put together to the policies that are created. So um, I don't know if you've explored this in other um, episodes, but we have the social model of disability, right? When we look at the barriers, the way in which the world creates barriers for people to access and um, to be part of the world. And so if you're, if you're doing, if you're everything from how you're framing a question, if you're looking at it through the lens of the social model versus let's say the medical model, which is more around impairment, that'll influence how people answer a question. Um, so I think I read this somewhere, so I don't want to, I should find all the citations so you can use it, but they, um, they gave an example. It's very, very simplistic example, but let's say you look at a jar. And if I ask somebody, um, what's preventing, or what is it with your hands or your body that you can't, what, what's creating an issue for you to open up that jar? Well, I can't move my hands. I have this, I have X, Y, and Z. So then when that's being analyzed and then the recommendations and moving forward, that would have to do with a particular way of um, how the question was framed right at the beginning versus, hey, what's up with that jar that is preventing you from opening it well the way it's actually made like the circle doesn't work and the lid and da, da 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 like so that would make us look at it in a very different way so that the recommendations and the changes are focused on the actual jar it's very simple and not the best example but that goes back to the views of the researcher how they locate these terms how they think about it too so when we think about um the implications, it has huge implications. It has huge implications in the way policies are created, the way um, we may, funding is allocated, like all those parts. And so there's so many stories and experiences out there that need to be told and told in a way that it's centered in everything. Like disability, in my mind, it's centered in what we do and it needs to be centered in what we do, especially in sensory research, because there's a lot of opportunity and important opportunity to. Um, affect the way our society is and to make it more inclusive for everybody. And, you know, the, the jar example, I think is, is a great one. I mean, immediately when you, when you pose that question, I could feel the difference in the questions and I could understand how differently I would have answered that question. And I think about, you know, uh, my mom and how she might have answered that question because she had arthritis in her hand. Sometimes it was a problem. Sometimes it wasn't, but she really didn't love jars. Um, and, you know, and, and I think if people had asked her and, and for a lot of other people who might have issues with grip, hand strength, uh, arthritis, and some other type of an episodic disability or a temporary disability even, right? You sprained your wrist, carpal tunnel, any of these things. If you ask somebody, you, I could, I could understand very easily how somebody would move towards a medical model of that. So it's like, well, you need medication then for your hand, or you need physiotherapy or, or, or instead of what's up with that jar where it could be maybe, Maybe that jar lid needs to be designed differently. Maybe the circle is only on the inside, but the outside's got grippies on it or or whatever, right? Like, so that jar example, I think, is is great. It was great for me and hopefully great for the people who are listening, because it really does help to help me understand this. And and then it makes me think, how do we get other researchers to think more like you? Because that's going to impact, you know, the the inclusion and accessibility in the work that they're doing. Well, I think what I see that's really exciting is that um, it feels like there is some changes happening. I mean, there's a long way to go, but um, again, disability research, participatory, collaborative research, it's kind of a um, action research. It's a benchmark, right? Like it's around 
collaboration. So in that example, um, I think if you had, if you were working alongside folks um, from with the, within the community, with lived experience, with expertise, all those parts, that stuff would be understood early days, right? And that's where participatory research is, um, I think, really important. It's also can be ableist the way that it can be taken up, which has to be considered too. So that's where I think sensory research really is a, it's a beautiful way of um, engaging in both. But the other reason why I think it's interesting is there's also this other movement, even in health research, we hear of patient oriented research. And sometimes the language is, is different in different disciplines, but the idea of working closely with people with lived experience is um, key. Now, that's where it's, so how do you make sure that you're including everybody in that or wh whomever is experienced, whatever topic or issue of concern or what you're looking at in research to make sure that process is um, accessible for people? No, um, yeah, so that's a consideration too, but I, I see these things happening more and more um, where you're engaging with folks right from the beginning all the way through, not just in the field research, but how it's written up. And Dean, as you were mentioning, like with validity considerations, and then also how it is brought out into the world, not only through academic art articles and book chapters and things like that, but also through creative ways like film, like theater, like um, installations, sounds, like other ways that we can really learn from the arts and build on the arts on making sure that these stories are told in, in all these different formats. You're touching on another question that I was wondering about is sort of like, what what is the reaction that you're hearing from colleagues right now, your colleagues in the research fields about what it is that you're doing? Maybe it's just the people I'm talking to, but it's always positive. <laughs> I think so. Well, then you're, talk, you're talking to the right people, I guess. That's good. That's good. Well, I think a big part too is, you know, I'm in social work and um, this idea of being really interdisciplinary is key. Only in the last uh, year, year and a half of um, like learning through anthropologists, sociologists, like sensory research isn't new per se. It's been, been done in for like quite a while in different spaces. I think what we're bringing to it is like the accessibility and centering disability in it at the very beginning, which is, um, is an important part of this uh, sensory turn that we're experiencing. So I think that people are excited, <laughs> not say, but also um, like other researchers and scholars, but also it's um, sometimes it takes a little bit to uh, like to talk through and listen to feedback. I get for me anyway, to understand like how we're actually trying to think through some of these ways it's prioritizing the different senses. Like, can we move to a space where we don't ever use words or we we never use um, like sight and, and which is, you know, considered more of the, if you're gonna put the senses in a hierarchy, but how we move into a space where it's completely only one sense. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's fun to play in that and to understand if we can, but it's around prioritizing it. And that was an important learning for me to, um, learning from uh, leaders in the field, so. You know, I, th I think I'm oozing a little bit of like quiet Canadian patriotism here today. And, you know, you, you can't see my shirt, but I'm wearing a shirt that says Canada right across it. And, you know, and I'm thinking this research studio is the first of its kind in the world and, you know, right here in, in Canada. So what's it like for you being kind of like a, a world leader in all of this? Well, I don't know if I'm, I don't think I'm a world leader. <laughs> I think that this is very much a, it is um, a real group community effort in making this happen. Um, and it's exciting. I think that um, it feels amazing to be part of something like this, um, to work so closely with um, amazing people and, uh, and being able to uh, see where it goes. I'm excited that, or feel very, um, grateful that um, you know the government recognized the need for this and, and contributed the amount that they did in order to make this come to life and a um, little bit nerve-wracking on on, on uh, the implications of 
where this will go, but I feel that um, the team is so amazing and supportive and we have um, such a great, uh, you know, University of Calgary is a fantastic place where this is able to happen and the support that we're receiving and also with the people in, on our advisory board and our, our, our advisory committee and, um, and yeah, so I think together, you know, <laughs> together, I keep saying that because it definitely isn't a one person show, that's for sure. So, yeah. And you know, you know what, Kathleen, Dean, I'm going to, I'm going to jump over you for a second, because I can see the question that's brewing in your head, but I just want to pull on this thread, Kathleen, you talked about um, all of the people. So just jumping off of that, you've got this advisory council or committee that you've put together um, and you kind of explained where they're coming from and stuff, but can you talk about the importance of that council? Yeah, I think that um, when we think about like the studio that we have right now, um, most of the folks that work at the studio um, are neurodivergent and most of the people on the council are either or like they're or not council, sorry, the committee or the group advisory board. <laughs> We're still learning about language, but uh, there are organizations that are part of the disability community. And it's also people that are living and breathing what we're trying to do. And um, I think that can't be underrepresented. Like that is critical because in so many other spaces, um those are sorry perspectives are often on the margins or silence and it's critical that they're centered not only to hold everybody accountable but um or what we're trying to do everything from the building of it to um how it actually rolls out but also because i think that there is a risk of falling back to as it was mentioned in an earlier question if we don't see the problem we can be part of the problem and as long as like ableism is so seeped through in, in so many, many, many spaces that I think it's pretty, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, let's use the word. No, that's not the right word. <laughs> I was going to say cocky, but I think it's pretty full of ourselves to think that it should be just a series of researchers doing this on their own with, let's say, key funders, which are funding is very important, but um, you have to have the right mix of people around the table. And that mix of whether it's participatory, collaborative, those values from the beginning, um, it makes it critical, I think, when we think about success and how we measure that in order to celebrate difference, to um, make sure research is accessible and to you know create stories through our senses in a way that everybody can do that. The advisory committee has to be in place at the very beginning. And we're in a we're fortunate enough to be able to, to make sure that we do that. And and when you when you've brought all of these people together and everybody's you know working cohesively to you know to do things differently and make things happen differently, what would you say are the biggest benefits of making research accessible like this? Well, I think it's a lot of fun. I don't know if you're like I find it a lot of fun. I love working in this space, and uh, I think a big benefit is that we would hopefully catch a lot of things that um, maybe. We, if we didn't do it this way down the road, if it was like right into it, we might be like, oh, we should have thought of that maybe a while before. I think it's hard to, it's a little bit hard to answer that question too, because if we're starting in a space knowing that we're going to make, there's going to be bumps along the way. Um, this is kind of a new thing that we're trying to put together here. So learning that, how do you work together in a certain way, what that process looks like the time commitment that that looks like to make sure that, you know, people are being paid for their time, like all those components to it. It's, it can be relatively complicated in, um, in this type of uh, initiative. So I do think it's important and we have to do it um, at the beginning. And I think if we don't do it, there's a risk that this studio might not be what we're hoping it would be. There's a phrase, you know, it's about the it's about the journey, not the destination. So you're you're making that journey, but at the end of that journey, what are you ultimately hoping you you'll, you'll accomplish? What what do you want to see most happen? Yeah, I agree with you. It is about the process. It's it's as important as the final outcome. What I'm hoping will be created, or 
will be this destination where innovation is coming out on how we create accessible sensory methods, um, exploring like imagined futures in a way that can really have a, a real impact in the world to make society more accessible or accessible for everybody and improve the quality of life for everybody. And I think that this is an exciting place to do it in. Um, or this initiative presents something that bringing people, I see it from around the world to come and to learn alongside one another, but also create alongside one another to celebrate these stories and to see how we can really push the boundaries on understanding the way research is done and also how we share this research who does it, how it's done, the way it's done, and in a way that celebrates difference um, and the way that amplifies stories in um, so that we can make important changes in the world. So that's kind of, you know, the big dream, I think, and to have fun doing it, right? Like to make sure that it's, um, I mean, creating stories around smells, like that's pretty cool. So we might as well be having a good time while we're working alongside one another doing that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And when you talk about this working alongside and you just sort of shared your vision of, you know, people from all around the world coming and, and, you know, can, can you maybe try to articulate how much of an opportunity this inclusive and accessible approach to research is for researchers? Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's a lot of amazing sensory labs out there. Like Concordia is leading that space. There's things going on in BC and Harvard. Like it's not that that, that in and of itself is unique, but what I think this does present that is different is from the way that this is built to who's going to be in this space to how it's being done, where we have these leaders in social sciences exploring different topics guided by participatory and collaborative types of ways of doing it. I think that that really does present something that's truly unique. And from the way that this is what we're trying to put together to um, how we're actually going to be doing it, the opportunity it presents is that that isn't really being done anywhere yet. I think it, and it all might be more of a model per se, moving forward on how things should be done, not just around sensory research, but around all types of research. And I'm not saying that's easy. It's, it isn't, I don't think it is easy. I think it's super complicated. <laughs> and, um, and I think that that's okay, that it is because we have to think about things differently. And I think it's a, a fight worth having so that those changes can be made so that everyone can be involved. I was, I was about to ask you sort of what's the most exciting thing about this, but <laughs> I kind of feel like you've already answered that. I don't know, Dean. Your, Kathleen, your, your your excitement and your passion just really, really comes across. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if that, all that's the exciting part, what's the most challenging thing about this approach? There's a few challenges on this approach. Uh, yeah, I think that... Time is something that is always, uh, that's a big part. I think it's, and I say time in this way that we have to bend time um, in order to do this properly. People have to get it. I don't know how else to, and to get the work, it takes, you got to pitch it, right? And you have to get it. And I think it's exciting. And, it, and I, as I was telling you before, but um we have to make sure that it gets out there too and um and that it does remain accessible i mean th there's a lot of different challenges i don't want to get I, i'm afraid of if i start i will continue on with those pieces but i think ultimately it's making sure and we've talked about it a little bit before it, it's an important challenge to have but that the key voices and the key individuals and groups are at the forefront of this process along throughout the journey, like from the very beginning through the mess, because this stuff gets really messy. But I think keeping um, those perspectives and amplifying those, um, yeah, amplifying those perspectives at the very beginning and, and throughout, I think that 
will be a challenge because that means we also have to engage in different ways and we have to make sure that uh, people are feeling heard and are heard and um, and that things are moving along so that this comes together in the way that we're hoping it can be. So, but I'm, I'm optimistic about it because we're excited and we have such a great group, a team that we're working with, but I'm mindful of that being something to hold on to or, or holding on to an awareness of that throughout. I know it feels very like kind of airy fairy out there, but the process, I guess, I think that can be a challenging part um, because it does require more time. It does require more um, thinking through how we're actually going to engage with one another to make sure that this comes to life in the way that we're hoping it will. Well, and you know, you're describing some, you're, you're, you're listing some really important pieces. These are, these are key um, to, to the, to the success or the, or the less success of, of any kind of projects really. So this is, um, you know, you're, you've talked about the most exciting thing about this, you've you've unpacked for us what some of the most challenging things about this are. So now I'm going to ask you what you think is the most important message that you have for for fellow researchers and maybe even future funders of research who might be listening to this episode. For fellow researchers, I'd encourage people to always think around accessibility from the beginning to the end of a project. And sometimes projects don't really end. <laughs> it's like, that's kind of a saying and participatory research, it never ends. But in the beginning, from when you're doing ethics to um, who we're who you want to talk to or who you want to engage with and the way in which you engage in the every, all those key pieces that we think about um, when we're doing research. Um, but the way in which accessibility can show up. That's, I think, an important message for everybody, really. Um, I know for me, I try and hold on to that because it's, as I mentioned before, you know, you make mistakes a lot. And um, when you really want to meet people where they're at, I think that's an important part. So accessibility is key and how that can be addressed in very complex uh, research designs. I think that's a really important part and an exciting part for research moving forward. Um, and then for funders, uh, if there's any funders listening, I'd say like this is a really exciting project, but it's it's also I think cutting edge because we're doing something that um, I mean we want to make the world a better place, and there's a way that we can understand people's experiences through story that's really creative and really innovative and um, blending all the different sensory methods with the digital world. And I think that this is something that is um, a new way or um, a really, really exciting, well, I've used that word so many times, but it's creative and um, be part of something like this. I'm, I'm hoping that people are interested in it because I think the messages for me can really have a positive impact on people's lives so let's be part of some let's be part of a really important change that we can make from the beginning of understanding um topics through really creative research my senses are still tingling from 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 this conversation and you've really painted a a picture for us and had some great insights i mean you know is there anything you know we haven't talked about 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 this that you think is important to mention uh, well, I would say if you want to stay up to, to to date on some some pieces that are moving forward, we have a website that we're hoping to start posting things on. It's multisensorystudio.ca. Um, and on there, you can follow our social media handles. And as we're moving through the building of this, we're hoping that um, like all this will be starting within the next six months. And um and yeah, and if anyone's wanting to be part of it or please reach out. And I have to say thank you so much for this opportunity to share the work. It's always exciting to talk about these things, but also to, um, yeah, to think about things differently and to also uh, share the work that we're trying to do. So thank you. Well, you know, Kathleen, I was going to say thank you 
for sharing this world first with us. And thank you for sharing this website. If I heard it correctly, it's multisensorystory.ca. Uh, multisensorystudio.ca. Studio. Thank you. Um, see, we all hear different things. Multisensorystudio.ca. And that's a great place where you're saying that people can either stay up to date or they can potentially find ways to engage um, and participate in some ways. So that's that's wonderful. And, um, you know, just thank you for coming in and sharing this with us. You know, I, lo I love the way that uh, Kathleen, you put it in the, in the University of Calgary news story, which was the, the piece that kind of led us to doing this episode, you know, that, that making research accessible for everyone, one story at a time, will lead to solutions that will create a more accessible society for everyone. So, Jeanette, you know, I'm thinking, you know, road trip out to the University of Calgary so we can actually get a taste of what's happening with some of those one story at a time stories being told at the multi-sensory studio. Yeah, okay, I know I can see I'm getting a big slow-mo shake of the head on that thought. Okay, I know. Well, if that's not in the travel budget, well, we'll just have to have, have, to have Kathleen back remotely from Calgary on a future episode to share some of the multi-sensory stories coming out of the studio. Okay, Dean, that, that we can definitely do down the road, and we really look forward to that. So right now... That's it for this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D and a wrap to our two-part series on new, innovative disability research being done in this country. I'm Jeanette Campbell. And I'm Dean Askin. Thanks again for listening wherever, whenever, and on whatever podcast app you're listening from. Join us each episode as we have insightful conversations like this one and explore disability inclusion in business and in our communities and even in research like we did on this show from all the angles. You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D is produced in Toronto, Canada by the Ontario Disability Employment Network. All rights reserved. Our podcast production team, executive producer and host, Jeanette Campbell, producer, Sue Defoe. Associate Producer and Host, Dean Askin. Audio Editing and Production by Dean Askin. Our podcast theme is Last Summer by Ixon. If you have feedback or comments about an episode, contact us at info at odinnetwork.com. That's info at O-D-E-N-E-T-W-O-R-K dot com. Join us each episode for insights from expert guests as we explore the power of inclusion, the business benefits of inclusive hiring, and why disability is an important part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. Listen to You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D on Podbean or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.